0: Before the Law, by Franz Kafka Before the law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper there comes a man from the country and prays for admittance to the law. But the doorkeeper says that he cannot grant admittance at the moment. The man thinks it over and then asks if he will be allowed in later. It is possible, says the doorkeeper, but not at the moment. Since the gate stands open, as usual, and the doorkeeper steps to one side, The man stoops to peer through the gateway into the interior. Observing that, the doorkeeper laughs and says, If you are so drawn to it, just try to go in despite my veto. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the least of the doorkeepers. From hall to hall there is one doorkeeper after another, each more powerful than the last. The third doorkeeper is already so terrible that even I cannot bear to look at him. These are difficulties the man from the country has not expected, The law, he thinks, should surely be accessible at all times and to everyone. But as he now takes a closer look at the doorkeeper in his fur coat, with his big sharp nose and long, thin, black tartar beard, he decides that it is better to wait until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool and lets him sit down at one side of the door. There he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be admitted and wearies the doorkeeper by his importunity. The doorkeeper frequently has little interviews with him, asking him questions about his home and many other things, but the questions are put indifferently, as great lords put them, and always finish with the statement that he cannot be let in yet. The man who has furnished himself with many things for his journey sacrifices all he has, however valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts everything, but always with the remark, "'I am only taking it to keep you from thinking you have omitted anything.'" During these many years, the man fixes his attention almost continuously on the doorkeeper. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to him the sole obstacle preventing access to the law. He curses his bad luck, in his early years boldly and loudly. Later, as he grows old, he only grumbles to himself. He becomes childish. And since, in his year-long contemplation of the doorkeeper, he has come to know even the fleas in his fur collar, he begs the fleas as well to help him and to change the doorkeeper's mind. At length his eyesight begins to fail, and he does not know whether the world is really darker or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. Yet in his darkness he is now aware of a radiance that streams inextinguishably from the gateway of the law. Now he is not very long to live, Before he dies, all his experiences and these long years gather themselves in his head to one point, a question he has not yet asked the doorkeeper. He waves him nearer, since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend low toward him, for the difference in height between them has altered much to the man's disadvantage. "'What do you want to know now?' asks the doorkeeper. "'You are insatiable.' "'Everyone strives to reach the law," says the man.' So how does it happen that for all these many years, no one but myself has ever begged for admittance? The doorkeeper recognizes that the man has reached his end, and, to let his failing senses catch the words, he roars in his ear, No one else could ever be admitted here, since this gate was made only for you. I am now going to shut it. Fedya Davidovich by Daniel Harms. Fedya kept prowling around the butter dish, and finally, seizing the moment when his wife was bending over to cut a toenail, he quickly, in a single movement, took all the butter out of the butter dish with his finger and shoved it into his mouth. As he was covering the butter dish, Fedya accidentally clattered the lid. His wife straightened up immediately and, spotting the empty butter dish, pointed at it with the scissors, saying in a severe tone, "'The butter's not in the butter dish. Where is it?' Fedya's eyes flashed in surprise, and, extending his neck, he had a look into the butter dish. "'That's butter you've got in your mouth,' said his wife, pointing the scissors at Fedya. Fedya began shaking his head in denial. "'Aha!' said his wife. "'You say nothing and shake your head because your mouth's full of butter.' Fedya's eyes widened in astonishment, and he waved his hands dismissively at his wife, as if to say, "'What do you mean? It's nothing of the kind!' But his wife said, You're lying. Open your mouth. Mmm, mm," said Fedya. Open your mouth, his wife repeated. Fedya spread his fingers and mumbled something, as if to say, Ah, yes, I almost forgot. I'll be back in a moment. And stood up, intending to leave the room. Stay where you are, snapped his wife. But Fedya quickened his step and slipped out of the door. His wife darted after him, but, since she was naked, she stopped by the door, as in that condition she could not go out into the corridor, where other tenants of the apartment would be walking up and down. "'He's got away," said his wife, sitting down on the divan. "'What a devil!' And Fedya, reaching a door along the corridor on which hung the sign "'Entry Categorically Forbidden,' opened that door and went into the room. The room which Fedya entered was narrow and long, its window curtained with newspaper." On the right-hand side of the room, by the wall, was a dirty, broken-down couch, and by the window, a table made of planks placed at one end on a bedside table and on the other end at the back of a chair. On the left-hand wall was a double shelf, on which lay it was not clear what. There was nothing else in the room unless you count the man reclining on the couch with a pale green face, dressed in a long and torn brown frock coat and black nankeen trousers, from which there protruded freshly washed feet. The man was not asleep, and he fixed his gaze intensely on the intruder. Fedya bowed, clicked his heels, and, having pulled the butter out of his mouth, showed it to the reclining man. One and a half, said the host, without changing his pose. That's not very much, said Fedya. It's quite enough, said the tenant of the room. Well, all right, said Fedya, and having removed the butter from his finger, placed it on the shelf. You can come for the money tomorrow morning, said the host. What do you mean? exclaimed Fedya. I need it right now. And anyway, only one and a half ruble is... Bugger off, said the host dryly. And Fedya fled the room on tiptoe, closing the door carefully behind him. Toenails by Jorge Luis Borges Gentle socks pamper them by day, and shoes cobbled of leather fortify them. But my toes hardly notice. All they're interested in is turning out toenails, semi-transparent, flexible sheets of a horn-like material, as defense against... whom? Brutish, distrustful as only they can be, my toes labor ceaselessly at manufacturing that frail armament. They turn their backs on the universe and its ecstasies in order to spin out, endlessly... Those ten pointless projectile heads, which are cut away, time and again, by the sudden snips of a Zollingen. By the 90th twilight day of their prenatal confinement, my toes had cranked up that extraordinary factory. And when I am tucked away in Recoletta, in an ash-colored house bedecked with dry flowers and amulets, they will still be at their stubborn work, until corruption at last slows them, them and the beard upon my cheeks. The Next Village by Franz Kafka My grandfather used to say, Life is astoundingly short. To me, looking back over it, life seems so foreshortened that I scarcely understand, for instance, how a young man can decide to ride over to the next village without being afraid that, not to mention accidents, even the span of a normal happy life may fall far short of the time needed for such a journey. The Dream by Daniil Kharms. Kalugin fell asleep and had a dream that he was sitting in some bushes, and a policeman was walking past the bushes. Kalugin woke up, scratched his mouth, and went to sleep again, and had another dream that he was walking past some bushes and that a policeman had hidden in the bushes and was sitting there. Kalugin woke up, put a newspaper under his head so as not to wet the pillow with his dribblings, and went to sleep again. And again, he had a dream that he was sitting in some bushes and a policeman was walking past the bushes. Kalugin woke up, changed the newspaper, lay down and went to sleep again. He fell asleep and had another dream that he was walking past some bushes and a policeman was sitting in the bushes. At this point, Kalugin woke up and decided not to sleep anymore. But he immediately fell asleep and had a dream that he was sitting behind a policeman and some bushes were walking past. Kalugin let out a yell and tossed around in his bed but couldn't wake up. Kalugin slept straight through for four days and four nights, and on the fifth day he awoke so emaciated that he had to tie his boots to his feet with string so they didn't fall off. In the bakery where Kalugin always bought wheaten bread, they didn't recognize him and handed him a half rye loaf. And a sanitary commission, which was going round the apartments, on catching sight of Kalugin, decided that he was unsanitary and of no use for anything and instructed the janitors to throw Kalugin out with the rubbish. Kalugin was folded in two and thrown out as rubbish. The Wish to be a Red Indian by Franz Kafka If one were only an Indian, instantly alert, and on a racing horse, leaning against the wind, kept on quivering jerkily over the quivering ground, until one shed one's spurs for there needed no spurs, threw away the reins, for there needed no reins, and hardly saw that the land before one was smoothly shorn heath, when horse's neck and head would be already gone. The Library of Babel by... Jorge Luis Borges. By this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters from the Anatomy of Melancholy. The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps infinite, number of hexagonal galleries. In the center of each gallery is a ventilation shaft bounded by a low railing. From any hexagon, one can see the floors above and below, one after another, endlessly. The arrangement of the galleries is always the same. Twenty bookshelves, five to each side, line four of the hexagon's six sides. The height of the bookshelves, floor to ceiling, is hardly greater than the height of a normal librarian. One of the hexagon's free sides opens onto a narrow sort of vestibule, which in turn opens onto another gallery, identical to the first. Identical, in fact, to all. To the left and right of the vestibule are two tiny compartments, One is for sleeping, upright, the other for satisfying one's physical necessities. Through this space, too, there passes a spiral staircase, which winds upward and downward into the remotest distance. In the vestibule, there is a mirror, which faithfully duplicates appearances. Men often infer from this mirror that the library is not infinite. If it were, what need would there be for that illusory replication? I prefer to dream that burnished surfaces are a figuration and promise of the infinite. Light is provided by certain spherical fruits that bear the name bulbs. There are two of these bulbs in each hexagon, set crosswise. The light they give is insufficient and unceasing. Like all the men in the library, in my younger days I traveled. I have journeyed in quest of a book, perhaps the catalog of catalogs. Now that my eyes can hardly make out what I myself have written... I am preparing to die, a few leagues from the hexagon where I was born. When I am dead, compassionate hands will throw me over the railing. My tomb will be the unfathomable air. My body will sink for ages and will decay and dissolve in the wind engendered by my fall, which shall be infinite. I declare that the library is endless. Idealists argue that the hexagonal rooms are the necessary shape of absolute space, or at least of our perception of space. They argue that a triangular or pentagonal chamber is inconceivable. Mystics claim that their ecstasies reveal to them a circular chamber containing an enormous circular book with a continuous spine that goes completely around the walls. But their testimony is suspect. Their words obscure. That cyclical book is God. Let it suffice for the moment that I repeat the classic dictum. The library is a sphere whose exact center is any hexagon and whose circumference is unattainable. Each wall of each hexagon is furnished with five bookshelves. Each bookshelf holds 32 books, identical in format. Each book contains 410 pages. Each page, 40 lines. Each line, approximately 80 black letters. There are also letters on the front cover of each book. Those letters neither indicate nor prefigure what the pages inside will say. I am aware that that lack of correspondence once struck men as mysterious. Before summarizing the solution of the mystery, whose discovery, in spite of its tragic consequences, is perhaps the most important event in all history, I wish to recall a few axioms. First, the library has existed ab eternitata. That truth, whose immediate corollary is the future eternity of the world, no rational mind can doubt. Man, the imperfect librarian, may be the work of chance or of malevolent demiurges. The universe, with its elegant appointments, its bookshelves, its enigmatic books, its indefatigable staircases for the traveler, and its water closets for the seated librarian, can only be the handiwork of a god. In order to grasp the distance that separates the human and the divine, one has only to compare these crude, trembling symbols which my fallible hand scrawls on the cover of a book with the organic letters inside, neat, delicate, deep black, and inimitably symmetrical. Second, there are 25 orthographic symbols. Footnote 1. The original manuscript has neither numbers nor capital letters. Punctuation is limited to the comma and the period. Those two marks, the space and the 22 letters of the alphabet, are the 25 sufficient symbols that our unknown author is referring to. Editor's note. That discovery enabled mankind, 300 years ago, to formulate a general theory of the library and thereby satisfactorily solve the riddle that no conjecture had been able to divine, the formless and chaotic nature of virtually all books. One book, which my father once saw in a hexagon in Circuit 1594, consisted of the letters MCV, perversely repeated from the first line to the last. Another, much consulted in this zone, is a mere labyrinth of letters, whose penultimate page contains the phrase, O time, thy pyramids. This much is known. For every rational line or forthright statement, there are leagues of senseless cacophony, verbal nonsense, and incoherency. I know of one semi-barbarous zone whose librarians repudiate the vain and superstitious habit of trying to find sense in books. Equating such a quest with attempting to find meaning in dreams or in the chaotic lines of the palm of one's hand. They will acknowledge that the inventors of writing imitated the 25 natural symbols, but contend that that adoption was fortuitous, coincidental, and that books in themselves have no meaning. The argument, as we shall see, is not entirely fallacious. For many years it was believed that those impenetrable books were in ancient or far distant languages, It is true that the most ancient peoples, the first librarians, employed a language quite different from the one we speak today. It is true that a few miles to the right, our language devolves into dialect, and that 90 floors above it becomes incomprehensible. All of that, I repeat, is true. But 410 pages of unvarying MCVs cannot belong to any language, however dialectical or primitive it may be. Some have suggested that each letter influences the next, and that the value of MCV on page 71, line 3, is not the value of the same series on another line of another page, but that vague thesis has not met with any great acceptance. Others have mentioned the possibility of codes, that conjecture has been universally accepted, though not in the sense in which its originators formulated it. Some 500 years ago, the chief of one of the upper hexagons, footnote 2, in earlier times, there was one man for every three hexagons, Suicide and diseases of the lung have played havoc with that proportion. An unspeakably melancholy memory. I have sometimes traveled for nights on end, down corridors and polished staircases, without coming across a single librarian. Back to the text. The chief of one of the upper hexagons came across a book as jumbled as all the others, but containing almost two pages of homogeneous lines. He showed his find to a traveling decipherer, who told him that the lines were written in Portuguese. Others said it was Yiddish. Within the century, experts had determined what the language actually was. A Samoyed-Lithuanian dialect of Guarani, with inflections from classical Arabic. The content was also determined, the rudiments of combinatory analysis, illustrated with examples of endlessly repeating variations. Those examples allowed a librarian of genius to discover the fundamental law of the library. This philosopher observed that all books, however different from one another they might be, consist of identical elements, the space, the period, the comma, and the twenty-two letters of the alphabet. He also posited a fact which all travelers have since confirmed. In all the library, there are no two identical books. From those incontrovertible premises, the librarian deduced that the library is total, perfect, complete, and whole, and that its bookshelves contain all possible combinations of the 22 orthographic symbols, a number which, though unimaginably vast, is not infinite. That is, all that is able to be expressed in every language. All. The detailed history of the future, the autobiographies of the archangels, the faithful catalog of the library, Thousands and thousands of false catalogs, the proof of the falsity of those false catalogs, a proof of the falsity of the true catalog, the Gnostic gospel of Basilides, the commentary upon that gospel, the commentary on the commentary on that gospel, the true story of your death, the translation of every book into every language, the interpolations of every book into all books, The treatise Bede could have written, but did not, on the mythology of the Saxon people, the lost books of Tacitus. When it was announced that the library contained all books, the first reaction was unbounded joy. All men felt themselves the possessors of an intact and secret treasure. There was no personal problem, no world problem, whose eloquent solution did not exist, somewhere in some hexagon. The universe was justified. The universe suddenly became congruent with the unlimited width and breadth of humankind's hope. At that period, there was much talk of the vindication. Books of apology and prophecies that would vindicate for all time the actions of every person in the universe, and that held wondrous arcana for men's futures. Thousands of greedy individuals abandoned their sweet native hexagons and rushed downstairs, upstairs, spurred by the vain desire to find their vindication. "'These pilgrims squabbled in the narrow corridors, muttered dark imprecations, strangled one another on the divine staircases, threw deceiving volumes down ventilation shafts, were themselves hurled to their deaths by men of distant regions. Others went insane. The vindications do exist. I have seen two of them, which refer to persons in the future, persons perhaps not imaginary.' But those who went in quest of them failed to recall that the chance of a man's finding his own vindication or some perfidious version of his own can be calculated to be zero. At that same period, there was also hope that the fundamental mysteries of mankind, the origin of the library and of time, might be revealed. In all likelihood, those profound mysteries can indeed be explained in words. If the language of the philosophers is not sufficient then the multiform library must surely have produced the extraordinary language that is required, together with the words and grammar of that language. For four centuries, men have been scouring the hexagons. There are official searchers, the inquisitors. I've seen them about their tasks. They arrive exhausted at some hexagon. They talk about a staircase that nearly killed them. Some steps were missing. They speak with the librarian about galleries and staircases, and once in a while, they take up the nearest book and leaf through it, searching for disgraceful or dishonorable words. Clearly, no one expects to discover anything. That unbridled hopefulness was succeeded, naturally enough, by a similarly disproportionate depression. The certainty that some bookshelf and some hexagon contained precious books, yet that those precious books were forever out of reach was almost unbearable. One blasphemous sect proposed that the searches be discontinued and that all men shuffle letters and symbols until those canonical books, through some improbable stroke of chance, had been constructed. The authorities were forced to issue strict orders. The sect disappeared. But in my childhood I have seen old men who for long periods would hide in the latrines with metal discs and a forbidden dice cup, feebly mimicking the divine disorder. Others, going about it in the opposite way... "...thought the first thing to do was eliminate all worthless books. They would invade the hexagons, show credentials that were not always false, leaf disgustedly through a volume, and condemn entire walls of books. It is to their hygienic, ascetic rage that we lay the senseless loss of millions of volumes. Their name is execrated today. But those who grieve over the treasures destroyed in that frenzy overlook two widely acknowledged facts." One, that the library is so huge that any reduction by human hands must be infinitesimal. And two, that each book is unique and irreplaceable. But, since the library is total, there are always several hundred thousand imperfect facsimiles, books that differ by no more than a single letter or a comma. Despite general opinion, I dare say that the consequences of the depredations committed by the purifiers have been exaggerated by the horror those same fanatics inspired. They were spurred on by the holy zeal to reach, someday, through unrelenting effort, the books of the Crimson Hexagon, books smaller than natural books, books omnipotent, illustrated, and magical. We also have knowledge of another superstition from that period, belief in what was termed the Book Man. On some shelf, in some hexagon, it was argued There must exist a book that is the cipher and perfect compendium of all other books, and some librarian must have examined that book. This librarian is analogous to a god. In the language of this zone, there are still vestiges of the sect that worshipped that distant librarian. Many have gone in search of him. For a hundred years, men beat every possible path and every path in vain. How was one to locate the idolized secret hexagon that sheltered him? Someone proposed searching by regression. To locate book A, first consult book B, which tells where book A can be found. To locate book B, first consult book C, and so on, to infinity. It is in ventures such as these that I have squandered and spent my years. I cannot think it unlikely that there is such a total book on some shelf in the universe. Footnote 3. I repeat, in order for a book to exist, it is sufficient that it be possible. Only the impossible is excluded. For example, no book is also a staircase, though there are no doubt books that discuss and deny and prove that possibility, and others whose structure corresponds to that of a staircase. I pray to the unknown gods that some man, even a single man, tens of centuries ago, has perused and read that book. If the honor and wisdom and joy of such a reading are not to be my own, then let them be for others. Let heaven exist, though my own place be in hell. Let me be tortured and battered and annihilated, but let there be one instant, one creature, wherein thy enormous library may find its justification. Infidels claim that the rule in the library is not sense, but nonsense, and that rationality, even humble pure coherence, is an almost miraculous exception. They speak, I know, of the feverish library whose random volumes constantly threaten to transmogrify into others so that they affirm all things, deny all things, and confound and confuse all things like some mad and hallucinating deity. Those words, which not only proclaim disorder but exemplify it as well, prove, as all can see, the infidels' deplorable taste and desperate ignorance. For while the library contains all verbal structures, all the variations allowed by the 25 orthographic symbols, it includes not a single absolute piece of nonsense. It would be pointless to observe that the finest volume of all the many hexagons that I myself administer is titled Combed Thunder, while another is titled The Plaster Cramp, and another Exact Blow. Those phrases, at first apparently incoherent, are undoubtedly susceptible to cryptographic or allegorical reading. That reading, that justification of the word's order and existence, is itself verbal and, ex-hypothesi, already contained somewhere in the library. There is no combination of letters one can make, D-H-C-M-R-L-C-H-T-D-J, for example, that the divine library has not foreseen, and that in one or more of its secret tongues does not hide a terrible significance. There is no syllable one can speak that is not filled with tenderness and terror, that is not, in one of those languages, the mighty name of a god. To speak is to commit tautologies. This pointless, verbose epistle already exists in one of the 30 volumes of the five bookshelves in one of the countless hexagons, as does its refutation. A number N of the possible languages employ the same vocabulary. In some of them, the symbol, library, possesses the correct definition, everlasting, ubiquitous system of hexagonal galleries while a library, the thing, is a loaf of bread or a pyramid or something else, and the six words that define it themselves have other definitions. You who read me, are you certain you understand my language? Methodical composition distracts me from the present condition of humanity. The certainty that everything has already been written annuls us, or renders us phantasmal. I know districts in which the young people prostrate themselves before books and like savages kiss their pages, though they cannot read a letter. Epidemics, heretical discords, pilgrimages that inevitably degenerate into brigandage have decimated the population. I believe I mentioned the suicides, which are more and more frequent every year. I am perhaps misled by old age and fear, but I suspect that the human species, the only species, teeters at the verge of extinction, yet that the library, enlightened, solitary, infinite, perfectly unmoving, armed with precious volumes, pointless, incorruptible and secret will endure I have just written the word infinite I have not included that adjective out of mere rhetorical habit I hereby state that it is not illogical to think that the world is infinite those who believe it to have limits hypothesize that in some remote place or places the corridors and staircases and hexagons may inconceivably end which is absurd And yet those who picture the world as unlimited forget that the number of possible books is not. I will be bold enough to suggest this solution to the ancient problem. The library is unlimited, but periodic. If an eternal traveler should journey in any direction, he would find, after untold centuries, that the same volumes are repeated in the same disorder. Which, repeated, becomes order. The order. My solitude is cheered by that elegant hope. Footnote 4. Letizia Alvarez de Toledo has observed that the vast library is pointless. Strictly speaking, all that is required is a single volume of the common size, printed in nine- or ten-point type, that would consist of an infinite number of infinitely thin pages. In the early 17th century, Cavalieri stated that every solid body is the superposition of an infinite number of planes. Using that silken vademesum would not be easy. Each apparent page would open into other similar pages. The inconceivable middle page would have no back. An Imperial Message by Franz Kafka The emperor, so a parable runs, has sent a message to you, the humble subject... The insignificant shadow cowering in the remotest distance before the Imperial Sun. The Emperor, from his deathbed, has sent a message to you alone. He has commanded the messenger to kneel down by the bed and has whispered the message to him. So much store did he lay on it that he ordered the messenger to whisper it back into his ear again. Then, by a nod of the head, he has confirmed that it is right. Yes, before the assembled spectators of his death... All the obstructing walls have been broken down, and on the spacious and loftily mounting open staircases stand in a ring the great princes of the Empire. Before all these he has delivered his message. The messenger immediately sets out on his journey. A powerful, an indefatigable man, now pushing with his right arm, now with his left, he cleaves away for himself through the throng. If he encounters resistance, he points to his breast, where the symbol of the sun glitters, The way is made easier for him than it would be for any other man. But the multitudes are so vast, their numbers have no end. If he could reach the open fields, how fast he would fly, and soon, doubtless, you would hear the welcome hammering of his fists on your door. But instead, how vainly does he wear out his strength? Still, he is only making his way through the chambers of the innermost palace. Never will he get to the end of them. And if he succeeded in that, nothing would be gained. He must next fight his way down the stair. And if he succeeded in that, nothing would be gained. The courts would still have to be crossed. And after the courts, the second outer palace. And once more stairs and courts. And once more another palace. And so on for thousands of years. And if at last, he should burst through the outermost gate. But never, never can that happen. The imperial capital would lie before him, the center of the world, crammed to bursting with its own sediment. Nobody could fight his way through here even with a message from a dead man. But you sit at your window when evening falls and dream it to yourself.